Hello, everyone. Welcome to our last week of our campaign, 40 Days Through the New Testament. Uh, if you haven't been along with us, I hope you'll jump in this week. I guess it becomes a campaign called Seven Days Through the New Testament, but you can start 40 days from whatever point you want. And if you've been going through it with us, I hope that maybe you'll just keep this plan and you can start it anytime you want, maybe once, twice a year. You go back through it and make sure that you're keeping yourself in the Word of God because that is so, so important to our well-being. Uh, in our walk with Jesus. I want to just give you a quick update on the grand project, which is almost no longer a project. It's almost just the grand. So right now, if you drive by, you will barely recognize it. There is stucco all over the place. Uh, it looks like a pretty finished building. The windows are open. You can walk in and see through them. Uh, the Ritz is virtually finished. And we, after this long journey, are on the cusp of actually finally entering the promised land, so to speak. So our plan, and I want you to put this date on your calendar, okay? We're hoping that in some way, shape, or form, we're going to be able to gather there inside the Grand or on top of the Grand or somewhere on September the 13th. So put that date on your calendar. It's a date we've been looking forward to for a very, very long time, and we want to have the opportunity to celebrate together and look forward to all the great things that God has in store for us. So uh, look forward to that. I just want you to know, too, this is a big week for a lot of us and our families, and so to all the teachers and the principals and the superintendents and, of course, the students, may God bless you. Our hearts are with you. Our prayers are with you, and we love you. Reminds me of... Mrs. Forehand, her name was Jill Forehand. She was my fourth grade teacher for half of my fourth grade year. Uh, they thought that I was kind of a misfit in the elementary school I was in at the time, so I ended up getting sent to a magnet program on the other side of town, and they said, maybe this will do him some good. So they sent me into Mrs. Forehand's class, and she was just a remarkable person. She had that kind of 1980s crimped hair, and she wore just a little bit too much flower perfume, and she had very heavy makeup like a lot of people did in those days, but she was a fantastic, fantastic teacher. She made me feel right at home. And she introduced me to something that I was not particularly fond of before, and that is the world of art. Now, what you'll see behind me here is a painting called White Center by a man named Mark Rothko. Now, I know the, the average eye, this painting may look very simple. Uh, but this painting by Rothko is actually a cherished and prized work of art. Now, Rothko was called an abstract minimalist by a lot of people, uh, an abstract impressionist in the art world. Now, he hated that because he didn't see himself as abstract in any way. kind of bothered him. He thought that everything that he painted was very plain. So, for instance, Mrs. Forehand introduced me to my first piece of art that I ever really saw, which was called At the Moulin Rouge by... Henri de Toulouse-Lautrec. And in that you see people, it's very clear. You have people there having a good time. It's still my favorite piece of art today. Love it, because it just makes you feel happy. Everybody's having a good time. Well, this is a different piece of art. This is, uh, to, to Rothko, plain as day. Can you see it? Can you see the profound and deep meaning in this painting? It's called White Center. I wonder why because there's a center and it happens to be white, I'm guessing. Now, when he looked at this in the art world, they were absolutely breathtaking with this particular painting. Okay, this particular painting was just, it blew people away. They said that they were amazed at his way of conveying immensely complex emotion through simplicity. Now, I look at this and Mrs. Forehand taught me pretty well. But I look at this and I see 
three stripes, maybe four, depending on how you categorize this one right here. Well, others look at this painting and they see something very profound, profound, deep emotion. This painting right here, I'm going to ask you how much money, when this was sold in 2007, how much money do you think this particular painting was sold for? I'll, I'll say over or under one million. Above or below, what do you think? It's not just above, it's way above. This painting sold for $72.8 million to the royal family of Qatar from the Rockefellers because they were so smitten with this particular painting at the wake, communicated all these sophisticated kinds of things in a way that the average person like myself, no matter how well Mrs. Forehand taught me, would, would look at this painting, right? They saw things that I can't see. I want to suggest to you that as we look at 1 John, which is where we're going to be today, the letters of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, that that is, in essence, what these letters are. That John the Apostle, who writes the Gospel of John and 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, that he is a Rothko of the biblical writers. He is somebody who conveys with simplicity very profound, deep truths about God. On the surface, what he says looks like a white center kind of painting. He basically says this, Jesus came in the flesh, love one another, walk in obedience, right? Well, that's pretty simple. Nothing too profound about that. Oh, are you kidding me? See, what he's going to do is he's going to, both in the Gospel of John, that's kind of the, the, the thesis, and in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, it's the same. Jesus came to earth in the flesh, love one another, walk in obedience. Jesus came in the flesh, love one another, walk in obedience. Okay, very simple. Even his Greek is simple. In fact, when you learn Greek, if you go to seminary or you study the Greek language, the first place they tell you to turn is to 1 John. It's the simplest Greek in the whole New Testament. So when you're done with that, then they send you over to the Gospel of John. He writes in simple Greek, but his concepts are very, very profound, though they are simple. It's like the Rothko painting. He's an abstract minimalist theologian, if you will. It looks simple, it reads simple, it's even short, First John is, and it's by an apostle, but that's where we can make an enormous mistake. See, John is kind of an artist. He's someone who uh, people can look at very easily and say, ah, you know, it's painting. I can't believe that that's that treasured given how simple it is. Like people looked at Rothko's painting. Abstract minimalists, though, they communicate in a profound way, stripped away of all the non-essentials. It's when you pull back all of the veneers, all of the little ornaments on the tree, to where you can see it just as it's supposed to be, where its essential characteristics come out. That's what 1 John is. It's the gospel, pure and simple. In fact, John Wesley said, how plain, how full, and how deep a compendium of genuine Christianity when he talked about 1 John. Now, for those with eyes to see, the letters of John are these kind of minimalist pieces of theological art. They describe darkness, but the centerpiece, in, just like in Rothko's painting, is light. So he's always talking about the light, Jesus as the light. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. And so what would make his joy complete is for all to walk in the light of God, forgiven of sin, in a fellowship that is forged by forgiveness. 
that can only be found in Christ and can only be found in honesty before God about our sinfulness so that the grace of God can cover our sins and pull us together into the light of God together. So we're walking in the light of God together. Invites everybody to choose light, if you will, and the light being God, because the light has chosen them. So the letters of John help us understand that the walk of faith is all about Jesus and all about what he's done. John is interested in loving one another, not just because it makes society a little more fun place to live, but because Christ first loved us. Walking in light is walking like Jesus who loved other people. So picture it again. It always is going to come back to Jesus. It's a, it's a sermon with one point and a lot of illustrations. That's 1 John. God is light, and in Jesus he offers light to all. So maybe if you're looking at 1 John and how it fits into Scripture in general, picture it like cameras. The world's largest camera is currently held by a certain aircraft hangar camera, but this little doozy here... Uh, this was put together back in 1900, and it was taken to try to take a picture of a, of a railway train. But back then, it wasn't like you had perspective and things like that. Now, I want you to just think for a second about the phone that you're probably following along with. I'm sure only on the YouVersion Bible app right now at this very moment. Here's your iPhone. It's a half an inch thick, and yet you can take pictures of vast canyons. You can zoom in and out. You can throw on filters. You can do all this other stuff, even though what you're taking the picture with is very small. Here you have the big camera to try and take care of a big object, okay? Maybe scripturally one way to, to look at this is like Romans and Hebrews. They're like this big camera to take a picture of something really big, okay? First John and the letters of John are more like the iPhone. Little camera with a great lens to help you pick up on all the little characteristics and all the little intricacies of this. And in fact, you can actually take an infinitely better picture with my, I can take a better picture with my iPhone that's just a half an inch thick, maybe less. You can get a quick, simple picture that gives you amazing detail. So we get this simple presentation of an awesome God. So with that, I want to turn to John's profound little letter, 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. Let's read. That which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes. Like, notice all the sensory imagery here, right? That which was from the beginning, you may remember in the Gospel of John, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, right? So here he opens First John this way. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the words of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it. And we testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we also proclaim to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. So understand this. What John's trying to help us understand is that He's not just trying to speak to the head. You get the eyes, the ears, the hands. What we've seen with our eyes, which we've touched with our hands. And that Christ is more than an idea. He's an actual person who came and walked among us. And that we're invited to have fellowship with. And so John says, just as we have fellowship with Jesus Christ, come join us. My, that in order for his joy to be complete, he's inviting people to come join those who are walking with Jesus, who is the light of the world. 
but he emphasizes this point. Jesus is not an idea or something out there. That Jesus is very much a person, something that he saw with his eyes, touched with his hands. And so we too, when we're relating to God, we're relating to somebody who's a person that's real, not just an idea, even though God has ideas and God is a lofty idea. He's also, he's also very personal. So notice again the senses that he mentions, and he wants their joy to be complete by seeing those Christians and those who haven't beheld Jesus walk with him. So let me ask us this. For those of us that are walking in the light, as John's going to put it in just a second, for those of us who have fellowship with God, does it bother us that others are walking in darkness? I mean, does it bother us at all that there are people out there who, who are not walking with the Lord, who don't have a relationship with Christ? Who, because in John, there's, there's a lot of dualities, right? You're walking in the light or you're walking in darkness. You're not walking in a dimly lit room. You don't do that in John. It's light or dark. And what he'll say is God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. So you can't bring your darkness into the light. God's light will wash it out. But if you're not walking in the light, then you're walking in darkness. Does it matter to us that other people walk in darkness? That those that we know, that we love, that we care about. And then, of course, the first place to start is, am I walking in darkness? See, what 1 John does for us is more than just assure us of God's love for us and Christ's sacrifice is sufficient for the forgiveness of our sins. It illustrates beautifully how those realities shape our lives together as the people of God. It calls us from darkness to light by saying, God is light. Come to the light because the light is God. Come to God is what he's saying. So he loves this language of light. Uh, in 1 John 1, 9 to 10, or in John 1, 9 to 10, he writes, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Now then the concerns of John's letter, so that was the gospel of John in 1 John. The concerns of the letters of John is that everyone comes to know Christ. He wants people so badly to recognize him, to see Jesus, the one that he's seen with his eyes and touched with his hands, the gospel that he's heard. He wants everybody to walk in that way, but you can't do it by just walking in there. That You can't bring the darkness there. And so he's going to go on uh, and explain to us where darkness ends and light begins. He sees a lot of people who claim that they walk in the light, and yet they still walk in darkness. They haven't yet renounced their sin. They haven't turned away from their sin. And so he says, listen, God is light in him. There is no darkness at all. And if we're going to go walk with God, then we have to confess our sins. And if we do, then he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But if we say we haven't sinned, then we're liars. And the truth is not in us. So let's hear his invitation here. This is 1 John 1, 5 to 10. He says, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you. That God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. And if we say we have fellowship with him... While we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us 
from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, get this, we make him a liar. And his word is not in us. How do we make God a liar? Because he said, you're sinful. And you need grace. You need forgiveness. And so if we say, ah, I don't have any sin, then we're basically calling God a liar. That's the point he's trying to make. So God is light. He is perfectly holy. And his way of illustrating it is simply to say, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. So if you take a look, go back in your Bibles to 1 John 1, 8 to 10. It's a plea for authenticity before God. Telling the truth about who we are. Being vulnerable in the presence of God and recognizing our need for his forgiveness and his love and his grace. Why is it so hard for us to be authentic before God sometimes? It's as though we never stop looking for fig leaves, it seems, to cover up our nakedness. It goes back to Adam and Eve when they tried to cover themselves up because they were ashamed of how God saw them at the time. And so God doesn't know. John's opening to these magnificent letters gives us a huge chunk of gospel that God is absolutely pure, right? God is light in him. There's no darkness at all. But he's also absolutely and unequivocally gracious. And he says, listen, if we will just confess our sins, he is faithful He's in, and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And once we're cleansed of all unrighteousness, now we walk in the light. So this invitation to the light begins by recognizing the darkness of our sin and trusting God's light is bright enough to abolish whatever darkness is inside of us. Now, this is where we kind of, again, run into a problem. It's, a, it's an authenticity problem. You know, you may have ever, uh, you ever ask somebody if they snore? Just go, hey, uh, hey, do you snore? I don't know that I've ever heard anybody go, yeah, I snore. The way I find out if they snore or not is to look at their spouse who's standing next to them when I ask them if they snore. Now, when I say, do you, hey, do you snore? Their spouse next to them, you can watch their, you know, one of those kind of deals or, you know, or that kind of thing. Whereas the person going, you know, I don't think so. I don't, you know, and these are the kinds of things you need to know. Like, for instance, if you're going on a road trip with somebody or whatever, you need to know, do you snore? All right. Now, that kind of just willingness to just say, nah, man, I don't, I don't snore. That follows us over into the spiritual realm all the time where we take the same kind of posture. Hey, man, do you sin? So we'll either do one kind of the spiritual equivalent of copying a plea where it shows, oh, yeah, you know, we're all sinners, right? Nobody's perfect, yada, 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 right? Instead of basically being willing to go before God, and God doesn't understand, God doesn't care if you snore. He does care if you lie to him about whether or not you snore. Does that make sense? So from a sin standpoint, it's about being willing to go before God and admitting, you know, God, I am a man or a woman of, of unclean lips. I am a man or a woman uh, who struggles with pride or struggles with telling the truth or struggles with anger, struggles with lust, struggles with materialism or greed or, or being selfish or not being generous or whatever the case may be. Understanding that there, right at that point, that's when the light enters. Right? You, can't, you can't have that kind of of cover-up and expect the light to happen, which is why a lot of the things in the world that are not legal uh, or are unsavory go on at night instead of in broad daylight. The light drives out the darkness, and it's the same in the spiritual realm. There was a survey across denominations recently in a Midwestern state, and here's what the study found. It said, although 98% say they believe in personal sin, 
only 57% accepted the traditional notion that all people are sinful, and fully one-third allowed that they make many mistakes but are not sinful themselves. So what they're saying is 98% of people say, yeah, um, personal sin exists, but a third of people said, not me, though. Everybody else. See, that's the kind of thing. Now, John is begging to differ with that perspective. He says that if we say we have no sin, that we lie, and the truth is not in us. But God's light, the piece of gospel in this, is that God's light can drown out all the darkness. That because He is totally and completely and fully light, that there is no darkness so dark that His light cannot drive it out. So John is just going to, in 1 John, just keep orbiting those truths over and over and over again like a drill bit, just kind of going around and around and around, drilling deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper into the soul and giving us that magnificent truth. What truth is that? That God is light and that he will drown out all darkness if we will take our darkness to the light. Darkness is a very strange thing. At the end of the war, at the end of World War II, there were some people that wanted to study uh, the impact of darkness on people. They thought that some of the soldiers coming back had been subject to mind control experiments and things like that. So they wanted to test the impact of darkness on people. So they formed this little research initiative, the CIA did, called Project Bluebird. And so part of that research team was a psychologist by the name of Donald Hebb. Okay, so he wondered, he'd heard of these reports, for example, of the Royal Air Force who was um, flying over the, the Atlantic at different times and, and trying to, and they would just see nothing but black ahead of them at night they'd be flying with no light anywhere to be found and that they would just kind of unexpectedly sometimes crash the plane because for, for really no expected reason uh, he had um, you know people that that were out on at a ship at sea and would look at the same horizon for a very long period of time would sometimes uh, fall ill or or pull the ship off course or things that weird things seem to happen to people when they couldn't see light in some way shape or form so he wanted to study this, so he constructed a grid of four by, four by six by eight foot cells, each air conditioned and soundproof. Then he recruited some volunteers, and then he paid those volunteers $20 a day and basically said, all right, I'm going to put you in there, and we're going to kill off all the lights. So he put uh, even goggles on their eyes and killed all the lights in there. Uh, and this was, again, by choice and, and just to study this, right? So he tries to create this total darkness kind of atmosphere for these folks. And so what he finds is that even after just a few hours, the impacts of total darkness really impacted these folks. So for instance, for some of these people, they would get up and they need to go move their car. He said that even in the parking lot, a couple of people got up, went in their car and crashed their car, just trying to take it from this parking spot to that parking spot. Uh, there were some people who just stepping out of their cell to use the restroom, couldn't find their way back. They were so disillusioned by what had happened to them after just a few hours of darkness, that they were so disillusioned that they couldn't even find their way back to where they were supposed to be. Uh, on several occasions, this took place. Now, there were other experiments that would go on uh, where all of a sudden people would start to see and hallucinate things that weren't there. So as the lights went out, so to speak, after an hour, maybe two hours or whatever, they would begin to see different things. One described it as dreaming when awake. So they would see, for instance, one saw a, a parade of squirrels marching around purposefully across a snowy field wearing snowshoes and backpacks. Uh, somebody else saw a bathtub being steered by an old man in a metal helmet. 
So people's brains just start spitting out these kind of random weird hallucinations as they keep going. So these kept going on and on and on. There was another one where a woman blindfolded herself for three weeks and tried to get rid of all light for a three-week period. And she reported an array of hallucinations, including an intricate abstract set of patterns like bright amoebas and yellow clouds and animal prints and things like that. Hallucinations for these folks began to happen because our brains are trained in the absence of what we can't see, like I mean, when the lights go out, your brain is trained to make you see things. That's what it does. So when the lights go out, if there's no light, you're gonna see whatever your brain produces. And sometimes it's weird. When we are in darkness, we see things that aren't really there. So I want you to think about your own spiritual walk. Think about the way you see the world. And if you're walking in darkness, I'm willing to guess that just like those who had lights turned out on them for some period of time, you're seeing things that maybe seem real to you. But what first John's trying to say is when you're walking in darkness, you can't see what's real. You can only see something else. You can only see what the darkness produces in you, the reality that darkness produces. First John would say that though when you walk in the light as he is in the light, then all of a sudden life changes. C.S. Lewis said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun is risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, then we have fellowship with him. And the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all of our sins. So you, this is your invitation to the light. You may be walking in darkness, and I know how hard it can be to admit that. But if you are, I want to go back to what John says here in 1 John chapter 1, that if we confess our sins, that he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There has never been a person who's walked this planet that's been a sin-free human being, despite what we think. That's kind of his point, that those who say that are liars and the truth is not in them. But as we go ahead and we confess our sins to God, he's able to transform us and take us from darkness to light. God is inviting you to his light. He's inviting you. Many never walk in light because they can't really admit that they've been walking in darkness. But Jesus came as the light of the world. He came and he brought sight to the blind. So everything about him is in this unimaginable, extraordinary light. So now as we gather around the Lord's table, here's what I want to invite you to do. I want you to remember the one who came into this world as the light of the world. I want you to remember Jesus Christ, the one who we have seen with our eyes and touched with our hands, the one who is more than an idea, but he's a real person who's inviting you to come walk with him, the light of the world, and to accept that call. If you've been walking in darkness, turn away from it. It's time to come to the light. It's time to come to the light. We're going to be taking communion, and we do this on a weekly basis here at New Vintage Church because we believe in remembering Jesus Christ, the Savior, the one who was the light of the world. And so when we take the bread and the cup, we take the bread, which represents his body, and the cup, which represents his blood. And so today in particular, I want to close with these words again from 1 John 
chapter 1, verses 5 to 10, he says, This is the message we've heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. Will you join me here around the table of God today in the light? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus who came into this world, not as some abstract idea, but as a person that we have seen with our eyes, that we've touched with our hands, the gospel that we have heard, Father, and the light that we enjoy. We give you thanks today for him. And we invite those who would come to the light, just as he did when he came to the world, Father. We invite those who would join us here to the table today to walk in the light as he is in the light. We thank you for Jesus today, Father. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen.